you. You can turn to Jonah chapter 1. Uh, he's going to read verse 1 to 7 for us this morning. The word of the Lord says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, you a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. As we read that passage this morning, or maybe in your own reading of it in the past, some of you may have noticed that verse 4 to 7 there is very similar to an account that's given in the Gospel of Matthew. Two different storms, but a very similar account. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 27 says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You know, I don't believe that it's a coincidence that these two stories are so similar. We see in them both Jonah and Jesus are in a boat, and that boat gets hit rather suddenly by a severe storm. And the description of the storm itself that we see is very similar. In Jonah, it says there was a mighty tempest of the sea. In Matthew, it says there arose a great storm on the sea. In the midst of the storms, both Jonah and Jesus were asleep. Though I would say that they were having very different sleeps. I think one a sleep of sorrow and one a sleep of deep assurance and peace. In both stories, those experienced at sea, the the mariners or the sailors in Jonah. And and we know that several of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. And so they would have been used to the seas. Uh, These men were terrified. Believing that they would perish and in both stories, out of terror, they go to the one who's sleeping and wake him. In Jonah, we see the captain go, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And in Matthew, we see the disciples say to Jesus, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And in both stories, there's a miraculous intervention that caused the storms to cease, which has a significant effect on those who are stuck in the midst of the storms. In both accounts, those presents seem to be, become even more fearful and awestruck after the storm ceased. We see in Jonah, it says, the men then feared the Lord exceedingly. And in Matthew, it says, the men then marveled. There's one 
striking difference between these two stories. In one, Jesus spoke to the storm and the winds and the sea were calmed. And in the other, Jonah had to be thrown overboard as a sacrifice for the storm to calm. But then when we think about it, if we continue to read the rest of the Gospels, do these stories actually end all that differently? Is there really that big of a difference between the outcome in Jonah and the outcome for Jesus? I think they're strikingly similar. Jonah was sacrificed. He was thrown into the sea and spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish in order to calm the storm. A storm that he himself was responsible for due to his own sin. And then Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross. He spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth to calm an ultimate storm, to calm the greatest storm, a storm that was so violent that it just doesn't cause loss of life, but it causes eternal destruction. A storm that wasn't caused by him, but was caused by the sins of others. He came to calm that storm of sin in every person's heart. And we see Jesus makes this correlation between Jonah and himself in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 40 to 41, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Your word points us to Jesus Christ. That in the book of Jonah, it very clearly points us to the reality of your son as a foreshadowing for he who would come, who would die on the cross. And Lord, I pray as I prayed last week that each week as we go through the book of Jonah, you would prepare our hearts when in several weeks from now we are going to commemorate and we are going to celebrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us and the fact that he rose from the grave. And so, Father, work in our hearts as we make our way towards the Easter season. Father, I pray that we would surrender to you, surrender to your Holy Spirit, that we may see the glory of what Jesus has done for us more clearly than we ever have in the past. And Father, as we go through these few verses in Jonah today, do a work in our hearts, Father. I ask, Lord, that you would move amongst your people. Make us more like your son. Amen. So we began our series through the book of Jonah last week, and we focused mostly on the major themes and the background to the book of Jonah so we could understand better this Old Testament story and this prophet that whose story seems very simple when you read through it, but in fact is quite complex. And, and if you weren't here last week, then I encourage you to go back and listen to that so you can kind of get the background of what's going on in uh, Jonah's heart, in the nation of Israel, and really what's happening uh, in uh, the landscape 
during the time that this book was happening, the political and the social landscape in the 8th century BC when these events took place. So we, we did that last week, and then last week we, we covered also verse 1 to 3 very briefly, taking some highlights of, of where we're going to go further today and in the coming weeks as we unpack some of the major themes in the book of Jonah. And, and each week, as we examine Jonah, I want us to keep our mind on the pinnacle of the book, what I said was kind of the climax of the book last week. And we can find that in, in chapter 4 where God asks Jonah the same question twice, and he asks asks him, do you do well to be angry? This is a, a deep theological and practical question. And God is exposing Jonah's heart. And he's exposing our hearts regarding the view that we have of who he is. And so I, I want us each week to hold that question in our minds as we go through each verse that we look at. Do you do well to be angry? This week in verse 4 to 7 that we're going to focus on, the, the action of these verses takes place entirely in the midst of the storm that pummels the ship that Jonah is sailing on in an attempt to escape the presence of the Lord. So last week I kind of ended by saying that Jonah's initial reaction to run from God seemed to succeed. Right? God, God allowed him to go, and when Jonah paid the fare and went down into the ship, he probably thought... He was going to succeed in running from the presence of the Lord. But, but the Lord was actually setting the stage to teach Jonah a very important lesson. And the first lesson came quite quickly after the boat set sail. And it's funny, something that, that sticks out to me in the, in the scripture is, is the way the words progress between verse 3 and 4 in the ESV. I kind of find it amusing because I'm a parent of young children. It kind of reminds me of some of the interactions with my own children who think they get away with something that they know that they shouldn't be doing only to discover mom and dad were watching them the whole time and they caught their transgression. Verse 3 says, Jonah paid the fare, went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's thinking, yes. And then verse four starts with, but. It's like, uh-oh, Jonah, but. And it kind of reminds me of my three-year-old Micah, who, who he likes to play with his brother and sister. They're 10 months old. And at times, Micah's version of playing with his little brother and sister is uh, that he basically steals the toy that they're playing with. That's his, his version of playing with them. You're playing with that? Well, I want to use it. And so the other day he was doing this a lot and I gave him one of those dad warnings. You know, if you do it again, it's not going to be good for you. One of those warnings. And so what happens? Well, sure enough, a few minutes later, Micah goes over to his brother and he grabs the toy from his brother all the while looking to see, you know, his dad watching what I'm doing, thinking, okay, I'm getting away with it. And then he looks up and what does he see? He sees dad's eyes right on him. And you know, like that, that deer in headlights look that children give you, right? That completely gives away their guilt before they even say anything. If you're a parent, you know what that looks like. And so Mike is staring at me and, and he's holding on to the hope that every child holds on to for just a split second before mom or dad react. Well, maybe they just looked up. Like maybe it was right after I did that. And that's kind of what's happening in the book of Jonah. Jonah thought he got away. He probably hoped that he'd gotten away with running from the presence of the Lord. But verse four says, the Lord 
hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And so this, this verse gives us some good information. First, it tells us that likely the storm came upon the ship rather quickly after sailing off because the men of the ship, they would have been experienced sailors. They would have understood the signs of a coming storm and they would have either maybe delayed or prepared better for it if it was a naturally occurring event. They also would have sailed in storms before because there are sailors who would have had this kind of experience, but this one catches them so off guard and was so severe that it terrifies them. And because of the quickness and the intensity with which the storm came upon the boat, the men seem to speculate very quickly that this storm has a supernatural origin because we see in verse five, they're immediately calling out to their gods for help. And so they seem to discern very quickly the origin of the storm is a divine cause. Which, of course, verse 4 tells us very clearly that it is. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So that, that word hurled there in the Hebrew is this word, or this word pronounced tool. And it's often used to describe throwing a weapon like a javelin or a spear. The same word is used in 1 Samuel when, when Saul was throwing his spear at David trying to kill him. And so the Lord is hurling a storm at Jonah and it's denoting that the Lord is in charge of Jonah's faith. Jonah's not running from the presence of the Lord, the almighty God. He's in charge. Jonah had not been successful in attempting to run from God's presence. And when the disciples experienced Jesus's ability to calm the storm that they were in, they were right to ask Jesus, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And it's the same picture that we get in Jonah. The strength of our God is being depicted here. How do you run? from a God who is sovereign over nature, who not only governs natural events, but initiates and uses natural events for his purposes. The winds and the waves do his bidding. All of creation is under his almighty hand. And this is the truth that Jonah is either trying to ignore or doesn't fully understand. But as I said last week, we, we can't vilify Jonah, though we do well to use him as an example. Because isn't it true that there's sometimes that we try to ignore or downplay in our own hearts, in our own minds, the far-reaching nature of our God? This is something that occurs in the heart of an individual, especially when you're struggling with sin. Or you know that you're doing something that you shouldn't do. You know in your mind that God knows. You know in your mind that God sees. But you almost try to file that away and pretend it's not true. Because in those moments, that's the worst thing to know. That God sees and knows what you're doing. The one who is going to judge us. We want to forget that sometimes. And this is what I think is happening with Jonah. You know, we witness in these verses... A very interesting dynamic in God's judgment upon an individual that we need to pay attention to. God's judgment comes upon Noah or Jonah in the form of a mighty storm. But is Jonah 
the only person that's caught in that storm? No. The sailors and the captain of the ship were affected by it as well. The blame of the storm and the trial that the sailors find themselves in rests solely on Jonah's shoulders. And yet, they experience the effects of it. And I think we need to acknowledge this reality and look at three aspects of what this tells us. And the first is this. Just as Jonah's sin affected those around him on the boat, our sin can similarly affect those around us. I think it's important for all of us to recognize this because I think we too often think of sin as an individual problem. And it is an individual problem. We're all going to give account for our actions before the Lord. But, but that doesn't mean that the effects of sin remain only with us. In the book of Joshua, there's this striking example of this very thing. God had commanded the Israelites to destroy the city of Jericho because of its great sin. And only Rahab and her family were going to be spared because of them helping the Israelite spies to escape. And upon destroying the city, God had commanded his people to destroy all of the things in the city. Normally, the the victorious army would, would take the spoils of war. And God said, don't take anything. It is accursed. Destroy all of it. And so this is what the people did. Or so this is what the people thought had happened. But there was one man, one man amongst all all the people of Israel named Achan, who rebelled against the Lord's command. And he took a robe and he took some gold and he took some silver from Jericho and he hid it in his tent and he buried it. And Joshua 7 verse 1 records the Lord's view of Achan's sin. It says... But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Do you see what that says? The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And the Lord's anger burned against the people of Israel, not just Achan. And as a result of his sin, God's blessing was withheld from the nation of Israel. And they go on to the next city, the city of Ai, to try to destroy that one. And what happens? They get routed. Joshua 7, 4 to 5 says, So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people. They fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. One man's sin caused turmoil and loss of life for an entire nation. We need to rightly acknowledge the effect our sin has on those around us. And In my experience, this is something that men especially need to be aware of. Because in general, I find men to be less aware of how their sin affects those around them. 
And I'm going to speak in generalities for a moment. And in doing so, I'm not, I'm not saying this is true across the board. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm confident enough in what I've seen and what I've experienced to say this is generally true. We all need to be aware of how our sins affect those around us. We do not live in silos. But to speak more specifically to the effects of one sin on others, generally the sins of men and the sins that men tend to struggle with will do more damage more quickly in our immediate family, amongst our wife and amongst our children, than the sins that women struggle with. Lust, pornography, anger, carelessness, of words. These are things that plague men, that men tend to struggle with more than women, and they destroy those close to us. Whereas women generally tend to struggle with things like gossip, envy, comparison, control. Sins that do have an immediate impact upon themselves and will have an impact over time on their family, but often not as explosively or far-reaching as a man's. Like, let me just give you an example. I'm sure the men in here could back me up on this. I don't know a man, if his wife struggles with gossip or comparison or envy, who's just torn up over it. Like, if my wife is struggling with gossip or envy or anything, it's not really affecting. It might be annoying, but I'm not torn up over it. And yet, I know so many women whose hearts are just broken because of their husband's lust and their husband's anger and their husband's careless words. And part of this is likely wrapped up in God's plan. The man is the head of the house. If Satan can take out the head, things crumble more quickly. Just look at any church, any organization where the head or the pastor is taken out. Things often crumble. We have to be aware and we have to be diligent of how our sins affect those around us. We are not silos. The second thing that we have to acknowledge is the flip side of this then. That there are times in our lives when we may find ourselves in a trial because of the sins of another person. And most often the reality with this is the closer relationship to that person that we have, the deeper the trial is going to be that we're going to experience. The deeper the pain that we're going to have. Again, we're not silos. Sins have tentacles. It does not affect only us. It reaches those around us. And it it, it can seem so unfair when this is the case. It can seem so unfair when we're going through trials as a result of a sin of another. Like, why do I have to suffer because of that? Why do I have to go through this? And I, I can tell you, God has promised us. Okay, and, and I, don't, I don't say this flippantly. I don't, I don't say it. Easily, I say it because God's word promises it to be true. God has shown himself and proven himself to be true that he will work all things, all things for good for those who love him. 
This means the deepest trial at the hands of another person or as a result of another sin, God will turn it for good. And we can look to the life of Joseph as an example. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy. Potiphar's wife had him thrown in jail as a result of his righteousness in the face of her transgression. He had immense trials due to the sins of other people. Yet instead of bitterness, Joseph recognizes as he looks back on his life, what was meant for evil, God turned for good. This doesn't mean that he didn't have dark days. This doesn't mean that he didn't likely cry out to God, trying to understand why this was happening. But even in the darkest night, because of our Heavenly Father, it will end and the sun rises when we trust in the Lord. One thing we should know as we're going through the midst of trials is difficulties and trials often help us in our faith. And ultimately, they reduce the power of sin over our own lives. And we'll often propel us into our purpose in Christ. God used Joseph's trials to prepare him to save an entire nation and become the second in charge in Egypt. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, we looked at this at men's group on Tuesday night, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's there's something about suffering that that refines us so that we cease to sin in the flesh. Look at the sailors in Jonah's story. They went through a trial because of Jonah, but the outcome of that trial, we can see very clearly at the end of chapter 1 in verse 16. What does it tell us? It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men came to know this God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, through Jonah's sin and the trial that they went through because of it. And so God used this trial that they were in in the midst of it because of Jonah to turn their hearts to God. Some of you may be in the midst of a trial right now. As a result of another person's sin. God will work it for your good. He promises that. It does not excuse the guilt or need for repentance of the one at fault. It does not diminish the difficulty of the trial. It does not diminish the pain that you experience. But if you acknowledge God's hand is over you. This truth will help sustain you through it and posture your heart to more readily see the mercy of your father in it as he works redemption through that situation. And what was meant for evil will be turned for good. The third thing that we have to acknowledge is just more generally that trials and suffering happen Because we live in a fallen and broken world. The simple fact that sin exists means trials and sufferings for every human being. 
we see this woven even into the curse that God placed upon the world following the fall. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Timothy Keller says very poignantly, every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. You know, the scene in these verses is quite hectic. As a result of sins often are. God hurls a great wind, which causes a mighty tempest. The ship is threatening to break up. The sailors are afraid. They're crying out to their gods. They're they're throwing cargo into the sea. And yet in contrast to the hecticness that's happening in this scene, look at the description of Jonah's state. Verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Like, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this at first, I'm just like, what? Like, how is that possible? From the description of what's happening, how is Jonah sleeping? But I think the apparent peace of Jonah's sleep is an interesting contrast to the chaos around him. But I really believe what appears to be peaceful on the outside is likely the result of immense turmoil on the inside. The ESV describes Jonah as being in a fast sleep, while some translations say he was in a deep, or he was in a heavy, or he was in a sound sleep. The the Hebrew word rawdam actually depicts the idea of being stunned, or being stupefied, or to seem dead. And I think Hugh Martin, he's a Scottish minister from a long time ago, He has it right when he says, Jonah is in a deep sleep of sorrow. Individuals who struggle with depression will at times describe the desire to escape reality with sleep. And often with depression comes increased urges to sleep in order to cast away the worries of the world. And that's likely that's what Jonah's state is in the belly of the ship. While the sailors are terrified for their lives, Jonah's escaping reality. He's not overly concerned with his life, or he would likely react as the sailors were. And he he also wasn't overly concerned for the lives of the others on that ship as he's consumed with his own grief. And he, he sleeps to escape the pain of running from the presence of his God, of turning his back. On the command that the Lord gave him, he knew he was being rebellious. What likely happened in this scenario is while the sailors were going down into the inner part of the ship to grab the cargo, to take it up to the deck, to throw it overboard, they probably found Jonah sleeping in the inner section of the ship and they went to get the captain. Because it's the captain that wakes Jonah up. And I'm assuming, I'm not a sailor, but I'm assuming in the midst of a storm, the captain's probably up top man in the ship. And so one of the sailors probably found Jonah, went and told the captain, he comes down and he wakes Jonah up. He says, what do you mean? You sleeper. 
Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I would imagine that the the use of the language by the captain, which I find is interesting, uh, would have been difficult to hear from Jonah. The first thing he hears when he wakes up, arise. What's the command that God gave him back in verse 2? Arise, Jonah. That would have been a startling wake-up call. Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Arise, you sleeper. And then the captain implores Jonah to call out to his God, knowing that the storm is divinely brought upon them and the other men had been calling out to their gods to no avail. But Jonah was of a different nationality and back then often gods were related to nationalities. And so the captain's probably thinking, well, you're from somewhere different than us. Maybe you know a different God. Call out to yours. Maybe he'll help us out. At this point, I think it's important for us to take note of what's absent from the text of Jonah. And granted, you could say that this is conjecture. But the text does not indicate in any way that Jonah calls out to God. There's no response from Jonah. The very next thing we see is the men are casting lots. And when I reflect on this, I think that makes sense. Because I think about what would I have felt in that moment if I was Jonah? I just ran from the presence of the Lord. I was just rebellious from God. Am I going to have confidence that I'm going to get up and I'm going to call out to God and he's going to respond to me? I don't think I'm going to have much confidence. And at the same time, I may be thinking... I just ran from his presence, and now what? I'm going to call upon him to bring that presence back? I don't think so. So I think Jonah stays silent. I don't think he cries out to God. Jonah does not use his faith for the common good of others. That's what it comes down to. He's stuck in sin, running from the presence of God. And because of that, he has no confidence to use his faith for the common good of others. And so I want to leave you this morning to reflect on that. Jonah, maybe because of the guilt that he felt from his sin, maybe because he felt stuck because he'd rebelled against God. Maybe it was as we talked about last week, Jonah was just so pro-Israel and didn't have a heart for other nations, didn't care. Whatever it was, Jonah did not use his faith for the good of others. So the question is, what about you? What about us? Can you say, can I say, that we use our faith for the good of others? Or are you stuck in sin? Are you selfish? Do you have no confidence in your God because of your sin? Are you unconcerned with those apart from Christ? Does your faith largely benefit you? These are heavy questions. I understand that, but these are questions that every single one of us has to wrestle with. We do. 
It's not about guilt. Let me tell you that. If you're feeling guilty, it's not about guilt. But it's genuinely assessing ourselves and going, God, am I actually in a position where you could use me? Or am I just so stuck up in sin? Am I just so uncaring of others that my faith just benefits me? That's not the life of a follower of Christ. That's not what we're called to. And so I leave you with that question and I hope for those who it's necessary for that God causes you to wrestle with that. I really do. And for those that it's not necessary for, that's great. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Joked last week, as the one commentator said, the message of Jonah is, don't be like Jonah. And Father, I pray that we use this book as a lesson for ourselves. I don't think there's anyone here who desires to walk a selfish Christian faith. I just don't believe that. I believe that in every one of our hearts, where the Spirit of God dwells, we want to live for others. We want to see people come to you and know you. We want to be used by you, God. And so, Lord, I pray for those in here who maybe they're just so stuck in sin. They're just struggling so much with something. Father, help them. And God, may we as a community help them, come alongside them, walk with them, encourage them, build them up that they may be used by you. But Father, I pray that you would change their heart. It must start in ourselves. It must There must be a willingness for you to work in us. Father, I pray for those of us in here that maybe we just have blinders on to what's happening around us. And we just need you to remove those blinders so that we can be a blessing to others. And God, I understand there's seasons. Oh, there are seasons. I'm in one right now. Craziness. But let us not use that as an excuse. May we still do what we can. Father, I pray that every person here would know the blessedness of being used by you, of responding to your call when you ask, of answering you, of of serving others and, and living wholeheartedly for you. It truly is more blessed to give than to receive. And so, Father, cut off our sin. Destroy the sin in our hearts. Bring us to repentance, O Lord. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for he who died on the cross because of our sin. Thank you that because of the work of the cross, you are faithful to forgive when we come to you. 
we can trust. And so, Lord, help us to do that. God, thank you for your word that bears weight upon your people. Lovingly convict and do a mighty work in hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.